I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Okay, we're going to talk some motorsports today. And if you want to talk motorsports, you go to Al Pierce. <laughs> because Al has covered auto racing for more than 50 years. 50. Think about that. He was there back in the 60s when NASCAR was just a little stock car circuit. Wasn't even on television nationally. So anyway, we're going to cover a lot of ground, not just NASCAR, but Al's covered auto racing throughout the world. We're going to hit him up for some stories. Al, I'm so glad you're joining us on Press Box Access. Welcome. Thank you. I'm I'm uh, honored that you would invite me on. I've, I've seen your list of previous guests. It's pretty formidable, and I'm, I'm honored to be among that group. So um, I'm ready. Let's go. Hey, first of all, I wanted to say congratulations. In February, you covered your 54th straight Daytona 500. 54. And I know you had some health issues prior to that in December, a uh, mild heart attack. I don't know. I, oh, it's easy for me to say mild, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's, 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 it's mild when it happens to somebody else. Oh, yeah. Well, it was mild, it's, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was my fifty fourth consecutive. Um, long, long ago. I mean, even ten years ago, the Speedway people told me that that was by far my streak. At that point, was by far the longest of anybody, and I've continued to add on to it. So, um, you know, I'd like to go again next year. Fifty four in a row. That's just amazing to me. I mean, hell, Al, the track should have started charging you rent back in 1970. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, yeah, I missed I missed the 69 race because I was I, I became a reporter after that first year of Daytona. Uh, I actually began my sports writing career in in the middle of 69. Right. And Daytona had already run. So uh, the 70 race was my first one. Uh, and I thought I knew, let me tell you what, I thought I knew everything. I mean, I just felt like I knew everything it was to know. Early in that race, Richard Petty blew up, came to the pit area and got out and went down to where his teammate, Pete Hamilton, his team was. Mm -hmm. And I said to somebody next to me, like I knew what I was doing. Well, you watch it there. Richard's going to pull that young kid out and get in the other kid's car and finish the race in the other guy's car. Well, as it turns out, he didn't. As it turns out, his teammate, Pete Hamilton, won that first race. <laughs> so I very quickly realized I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did. Well, that's that goes for all of us in sports riding, right? We're all just kind of faking it. <laughs> it it, it, it kind of goes back, and this is a story that people will tell you about me. Uh-oh. Uh, Here we so go. So I'll tell it myself. The first race I ever covered as a, as a reporter was the first ever race at Dover, Delaware mm -hmm. in the summer of 69. Right. Dover had just opened. It was the first race. I drove up there from Newport News, and I covered it. 
and I'm I'm at the back of the press box because I'm the new kid. I'm brand new, and I'm at the back of the press box, and Richard Petty won the race. So Richard comes to the press box, answers a bunch of questions, and I've I've just feel like I've got to establish myself. I've got to tell people who I am, you know. So from the back of the press box, I very tentatively raised my hand. Yeah, boy. <laughs> I said, I said, Mister Mister Petty, which is my first mistake. Mister Petty, why did you climb out the window and not and not just open the door in Victory Lane? And he he looked at me from behind those sunglasses and said, "Boy, you don't know much, do you?" And I and I said, "No, sir, but I expect to learn." And, and from that moment on. Richard and I have been, I think, pretty good friends. So That's amazing. <laughs> the first race, that's the first race I'd ever seen. I didn't know. You know, I had no clue. And, so, and if, if left, left leg comes out of the car window and the right leg, and Petty comes out and waves at everybody, and I'm thinking, just open the door. What's the big deal? And he said, <laughs> boy, you don't know much, do you? Well, I said, no sir, but no sir, but I expect to learn. So, that's a great, that's I, a great story and, to start with. And I love I, it, and I think I have. I think you have too. I think you've learned. I mean, think about this: thirty-five years at Daily Newspapers, the Times Herald, and Daily Press, and Newport News, Virginia. Fifty years at Auto Week, you're still a contributing yeah. editor. Um, racing's taking you all over the world. Fifty states. Mexico, Canada, Australia, Japan, Le Mans. You've won every kind of award. You're in all kinds of Hall of Fames. But when you showed up a month before that race, when you showed up at the Times-Herald and Newport News, the uh, the sports editor had one question for you, right? Well, well, uh, it was back up just a couple of weeks. Um, graduated from college in 65, taught high school for a year. Right. The army, the army got me for three years, including a tour in Vietnam. I got out of the army in June of '69 with no prospects. I didn't have any idea what I was going to do. A, a friend of mine told me that the local newspaper was looking for a new guy because one of their reporters had just left to go somewhere else. So I drove down there unannounced, uninvited, walked in. Asked to speak to the sports editor, and I was lucky enough to get an interview that lasted about five minutes. Uh, he wanted to know all about me, you know, college graduate, yeah, military, yeah. And and he said, well, you obviously know about football, you know, like mainstream sports, you know, football, basketball, baseball, you know, all that stuff. And well, yeah, you know, most most people my age did. Then he looked at me and he said, what do you know about stock car racing? And I immediately realized if he had a question that specific, that was something he needed. <laughs> and I lied through my teeth. I lied. I lied like a politician. I said, oh, man. I said, I'm from North Carolina. I know Richard Petty is from North Carolina. I said, you know, I, I've been to Daytona, which I had as a fan. I've been to Daytona. I know, Richard, I know everything you need to know. <laughs> and then he said to me, when can you start work? And I made a big deal of looking at my watch, and I said, well, 
right now. <laughs> so that's that in in June of '69 I started, and in November of '04 I retired from that job. Now early in 1970, early Auto Week called me. They needed the they needed the NASCAR race at Richmond covered, mm-hmm. and they knew I was only 60 miles away. So I covered for Auto Week in Richmond that year, and they liked what I did, and they <laughs> I'm still there. Yeah, They're still faking it, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm still I'm still at Auto Week. Um, so really, I, I mean, I tell people unashamedly, you know, I lied my way into a job, <laughs> but I, I felt like after giving my country a year in Vietnam, I could lie just a little bit. And become a sports writer. So oh, hell I yeah. I mean, you know, thank you thank you for your service. And if you can fight your way through Vietnam, you can come home and lie your way into a sports writing job, of all things. And you know how to write about auto racing. I mean, in 2003, you won the Henry McLemore Award. That's the highest recognition for a motorsports journalist. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you've covered thousands of races of all types. And we're going to talk a lot of NASCAR but you've done IndyCar, Formula One, NHRA. You've done powerboats, go-karts, yeah. short tracks. <laughs> when you think about all the racing that you've covered, besides NASCAR, is there something that, that a story that sticks with you even today that, that is very memorable? Maybe it's a certain place you were at or a, an event or a driver that's not related to NASCAR. Years and years ago, Auto Week had a deal where they – they wanted to send their NASCAR guy to a Formula One race and their Formula One guy to a NASCAR race mm-hmm. the same weekend. And and I was fortunate enough to go to Canada for the Canadian Grand Prix. And I was at, now this is probably maybe 30 years ago, and I was absolutely blown away by the, the level of technology and the level of engineering that goes into a Formula One car. I just, I couldn't imagine. Because I had never seen one up close until I went on the grid that weekend and and realized how many computers are in the garage area, how many many electronic devices are used to make a Formula One car go fast. I watched part of yesterday's Miami Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. And again, this is 30 years ago in Montreal, but I'm sure that things exponentially have gotten way, way, way more complex. And I'm thinking, how do these people figure this out? All right. And having been around stock cars for so long before Montreal, all of all of those cars are fairly they're fairly simple. You know, back then, eight cylinders, carburetor, you know, the, the regular, what you think about as a car. Mm-hmm. Nothing computerized. They Back then, NASCAR didn't even allow you to hook a computer to a car except in a private test. You could do it there. So NASCAR was basically primitive right. compared to Formula One. And I did not realize how advanced Formula One was until I went to Montreal and left there thinking, my God, those people, <laughs> they are br- they're either brilliant. or they- And the other thing that impressed me about Montreal was the money that seemed to be there, mm. the social scene, the, the yachts along the waterfront, 
I was told about all the jets that had flown in that weekend, all of which was just something I couldn't quite fathom until I looked at it and saw it up close. So Formula One was just, uh, it just blew me away because I was not prepared to see things that sophisticated. Right. Yeah, I think sometimes if, if folks could just walk into a garage, you know, they probably have a, in their mind what it's like. But if you took them in the pit row, um, it, it's like a different world. Yeah, yeah. Compared to NASCAR, IndyCar is 10 years ahead of its time. But compared to IndyCar, Formula One is 10 years ahead of its time. Al, when you think about all the different types of racing that you did cover throughout your career and, and still do, what is the common denominator in your mind and how do you approach telling a story to an audience because of that? The drivers, whether it's a powerboat, whether it's Miss Budweiser or, or Miss Atlas Van Line or whatever, whether it's a powerboat, a Formula One car, uh, an Indy car, a weekly short track, dirt track cars, the drivers are all as committed and dedicated to what they're doing as anybody can be in any other sport. Mm. Now, you hear about so-and-so, so-and-so went out on the driving range, you hit a thousand golf balls. So-and-so went out on the tennis court, and, and served a thousand times, mm -hmm. you know, right. to prove how much they love their sport. These guys, fr from the from the time that Daytona opens in February until the time Homestead or Phoenix closes in November, the NASCAR guys, of whom I'm most familiar, they are basically 24-7. Mm. They've got something to do almost every day. Now, it may not be at a racetrack because there's not much testing any longer, but it might be a PR deal. It might be a sponsor deal. Uh, it might be a, a photo shoot somewhere. Drivers across the board dedicate as much time in their life to racing as any athlete in the world. Right. Uh, and I, I think... I. Todd, I, I think the general public underestimates how good these people are at what they do. They are, they are the best of the best. You talk about Tom Brady, which is fine, or Patrick Mahomes, which is fine, or anybody else. They're great. Aaron Judge is great. Um, Tiger Woods used to be great. Federer and Nadal, those guys are as good at what they do as anybody. These guys are too. And I, I think that the public generally looks upon it as, well, they're just sitting in a car, they're driving in a circle for four hours. <laughs> How tough can it be? <laughs> well, let me tell you, it's pretty tough. Well, they're putting their life on the line. Well, yeah, they do that. that that's the other thing. I have been, unfortunately, I have seen a number of people killed at a racetrack in front of me. Um you you don't expect to see a golfer die. You don't expect to see a tennis player die. Right. We almost had an NFL guy die this past year. He apparently has recovered well. But I have seen people killed at a racetrack, Daytona, Talladega, Martinsville, a little half-mile track. 
I've seen people kill there. But, but I think that take that's where the commitment to the focus that's necessary when you climb into that car, whatever type of automobile it is, whatever type of racing machine it is, you need that type of commitment and concentration and focus to do your job. But, you know, I think, I think if you ask them, if you ask Kyle Larson or Denny Hamlin or anybody who raced yesterday, when you got in that race car today at 3.15, did you have any idea that you might not come home tonight? They'll say no. Never crossed my mind. Never crossed my mind. Um, the weekend after Dale Earnhardt got killed at Daytona, the next weekend, Junior, his kid, wrecked on the first or second lap at Rockingham the next weekend. Right. And all of a sudden, people are saying, oh, my God, Big Dale just got killed. I sure hope Junior's okay. Later on, Junior told us he'd never, that never crossed his mind. Mm that he would die like his father did. So I don't, I mean, yeah, there's a commitment to that, but I don't think they dwell on it. They just don't, they don't, you know. Yeah, I know from talking to racers, they they just don't go there. They can't let themselves go there. Right, exactly. And the other thing is, (laughs) they will not admit this, but a lot of them would race for a lot less money than they're going to make. Don't tell anybody that. (laughs) Right. The trophy. They want the trophy. Right. That's all they care about. Right. Give me the trophy. Um, Many, 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 many years ago, Wendell Scott, uh, the only African, well, until Bubba came along, Wendell Scott was the only African-American driver of any note in NASCAR. And he won a race in Jacksonville, Florida one night. He's 63. Mm -hmm. Well, the people in Jacksonville that night at that racetrack were not about to have a black man get up on stage with a white beauty queen and take the trophy, mm. pose for pictures. That's the way it was in Jacksonville in in the early 60s. Mm. So they came up with this bogus scoring era in which Buck Baker, a white champion, popular driver, Buck Baker was given the opportunity to go up on stage, kiss the beauty queen, go through all the post-race hoopla, and he didn't. He had not won the race. And Wendell Scott knew he had not won the race. Mm. Wendell knew that he had won it, and he quietly said to the officials, I'd like a scoring recheck. Well, <laughs> it took about two and a half hours to recheck scoring when everybody knew that Wendell had won the race. The promoters in Jacksonville wanted to clear the grandstand. They wanted everybody Mm. gone Mm. before they said a black man has won our race. And all through his life, the rest of his life, Wendell and his family, the only thing they wanted from Jacksonville was the trophy. They had given the trophy to Buck Baker who had taken it back to Charlotte. Wendell got his money, but the family spent the rest of his life and up until about two years ago trying to get the trophy. Did he get the trophy? He, he got facsimiles and replicas because the Baker family said, 
gee, we don't know where it is. Wow. You know, Buck won so many races. He gave trophies away. They're out in the garage. We don't know where they are. So Wendell never got the original trophy he deserved. But it says a lot about, the, it says a great deal about the sport that Wendell was more concerned about not getting the trophy he had earned than the money. Right. Did you ever talk to Wendell at length about that whole experience? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How did he deal with it? He was the most resilient, the most um, resilient is the best word. He, he hardly let anything bother him. Uh, he came out of Danville, Virginia. Um, he, the story is true that the local, the local short track promoter in Danville was looking for a black driver to kind of bring some more crowd to his racetrack. Mm-hmm. And the local promoter went to the <laughs> went to the Danville police and said, "We're looking for." They didn't use the word African American or black at the time, but we're looking for this type driver to bring in to maybe attract a few more fans. And the police said, well, is this guy named Wendell Scott who hauls moonshine and we can't catch him. <laughs> We've been <laughs> literally, this is the story. We've been chasing Wendell for years. We know who he is. We know where he lives. We don't know where he picks up his loads. We don't know where he drops them off. Because every time we catch him, he's clean. He's done. He's finished for the night. Get him. <laughs> so the local promoter went to Wendell Scott and said, I'll tell you what we'll do. If if you come out and race at our racetrack, we'll guarantee you X amount of money. Because he knew that Wendell would attract African-American fans. Um, you know, we'll take care of you. We won't let anybody bother you. Right. And, and Wendell became so successful on the short tracks in Virginia and the Carolinas, he eventually went to Cup and eventually won a race. Um, he's in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Uh, he he never ever let the intimidation. He never let the threats. He never left. He never let the um, post race deep down in the dark woods on a two-lane road um, roadblocks bother him. And, and, and his sons, his sons, and I think one of his brothers, sort of like the Wood Brothers, the, the family was the team. Mm. The sons were the crew, the crew and all. Um, and Wendell just said, this is our career. This is what we're going to do. Mm. And he was an excellent mechanic. He worked on his own car, and later in his life, when it became clear that he was a serious racer, he was not just a publicity stunt, people began to give him used parts and pieces. Mm. The Petties were good to him. Bobby Allison was good to him. Uh, Holman Moody team was good to him. But he was basically unsponsored his whole career, and won a race fair and square uh, and earned, you talk about a guy coming up from nothing to having some success in racing. Wendell Scott probably came from as little as anybody's ever had 
to become a winner, a one-time winner, but a winner just the same. I'm so glad you've shared this about Wendell. I mean, he's a name that doesn't get enough attention, gets lost in history. And you think about the courage he had in the car and the courage out of the car. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He he just, he he never, from what I can tell, and again, I talked to him, I talked to his family as recently as a year ago. Uh, I don't know that he ever stooped to retaliate to what was done to him. Mm. Now, on the racetrack, if you roughed him up, he'd rough you up if he could. That's that's fair game. Everybody does that. Ross Chastain does that. Uh, everybody does that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Wendell ever retaliated outside the race car. He never walked down to a, another guy's pit with a tire wrench and started whipping on him. I don't think he ever did that. Mm-hmm. He was just, he was a gentleman. He was, and I, I so much, again, I started in 69 and he was racing then. And, and I, I count myself fortunate to have seen people like Buck Baker and Wendell Scott and Leroy Arbor, a lot of guys who, who had short lived careers. Um, right. Not necessarily short lived, but Wendell's career, it ended with an injury in Talladega. Uh, I'm so glad I got to see him race. Yeah. And got to meet him and write about him. That's that's fantastic that you shared this with us. I really appreciate that, Al. It's great that you brought up Wendell and, and gave us some much-needed detail about his, his amazing career. The, the point being, it, it was, for most of these guys, the trophy is a bigger deal. They've got all the money they need. Kyle Busch and Kurt Busch and Joey Logano and Kevin Harvick and, and Dale Earnhardt Jr., they've got all the money they'll ever need. They're racing now for trophies, but they won't, they won't tell you that. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Nobody won more trophies than Richard Petty. And you mentioned that the Petty family Going back to his father, Lee, the Petty family was good to Wendell Scott, which says so much about the Petty family. And you can't say enough about Richard Petty, the driver. He is the guy who set the standard that everything's measured against. 200 wins in his amazing career, 1958 through 1992, 35-year career. You know, when a guy reaches a status like Petty, uh, it's like iconic. And then he, look at his nickname, The King. I know from a, a few times that I was fortunate enough to, to talk with Richard, I always felt like I was talking with my neighbor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and the reason being, he, he came from a little crossroads community in North Carolina. That there might have there been 100 people that lived within 
five miles of him, a little place called Level Cross. Hmm. And Richard and his father, Lee, and his brother, Maurice, um, they did not know anything growing up except being hardworking, humble. Nothing big about me. I'm just a race car driver kind of guy. And Richard never lost that. You know, you, you see Richard at the Waldorf for the banquet. He'd still be having, he'd still be wearing his cowboy hat. <laughs> he'd still be wearing his sunglasses. <laughs> it just never changed. Um, he, he was and remains the most humble, the most um, down-to-earth, real person I've, I think I've ever met. Uh, whether he's in the in the company of me and a bunch of reporters behind a hauler, or whether he's at the White House getting the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom, which he did, whether he's at the United Nations or, or whatever, no matter where Richard Petty is, he's the same guy who grew up in Level Cross going to a, I don't know, maybe a two or three room school and, and just racing because that's what his father did and that's what he did after his father. Give us a story about witnessing something about his humbleness. You know, I, I, Todd, I have seen him sit on the edge of a pit wall at Martinsville in particular after a 500-lap race, which he probably won, or maybe didn't. didn't matter. He sit on a concrete brick wall at Martinsville and sign autographs until it got too dark to see. Mm. Now, Martinsville has lights now. They could go all, they could go to midnight. Who knows? Back in the day, Martinsville did not have lights. And, you know, it got fairly early in September when they ran their fall race. Richard would sit there on a wall, cross his legs, keep his hat on, and he would sign every autograph everything that was brought to him. It might be a book about another driver. Somebody might have brought him a book about Cale Yarborough, and Richard would still sign it. <laughs> Richard would sign, and, and I, I, I've done stories about Richard and, and his signing, and he, he has signed some of the most unusual things Okay, give us some. Well, I mean, what is the sign? Been, Come on now. Late, ladies have been known to <laughs> present body parts, <laughs> which he, which he politely held up, and you know his his signature goes forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, well there's a lot of body parts, Al. Come on. Yeah. Right. Well, <laughs> they, they they present one of two body parts, and he'd sign it. <laughs> I've seen him sign animals. Oh, come I've on. Seen, come on, really? I've seen him sign a lady or a gentleman will come up to him with with like a little puppy, short-haired dog, and he would give the, the man with the dog would give the would give Richard a bigger than usual Sharpie. Not the little skinny kind, but a big Sharpie with a big blade. And Richard would sign the side of the dog, <laughs> you know, and never come, never complain, never say, "Yeah, well, man." Yeah. Wait a did the dog have any say in the matter? <laughs> I, I don't think he did. No, neither. Well, but the lady did earlier. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he is just he is just the best. Um, for twenty five years, I did 
Kyle Petty, his son, Lee's grandson, did a cross-country charity motorcycle ride for 25 years. Mm -hmm. We rode from basically the West Coast to the East Coast, occasionally up and down. But in any case, Richard did most of those races or rides. And we would stop in a little town somewhere in the middle of Kansas. Mm -hmm. And there would be some people there had lunch waiting for us hot dogs and sodas and beans and whatever. And there would be no place to sit. Everybody would just grab a seat wherever they could. And Richard would, would plop down under a tree and lean back and eat his hot dog and drink his soda. He wouldn't ask anybody to go get it for him. He'd stand in line like everybody else. Hmm. He'd sit wherever he could, uh, under a tree, on a park bench, whatever. He never asked for anything more than the rest of us were getting. Mm. We had to stand in line for our hot dogs. Richard stood in line with us. He just, he, he has, I don't think he's ever felt like he's anybody other than just a regular person who has a particular job that a lot of people enjoyed watching him do. And and he he said a million times, if if people don't want my autograph, I'm nobody. Right. Well, he did his job better than anybody. Two hundred oh. victories. One of the things I love about Patty's career is that it should have been two hundred and one victories. Should have been. His father his father took one away from him. His first one, right? Richard wins his first yeah. race, yeah. and his dad protest protested the score. <laughs> and there's a reason. There's a reason for that. It was at Lakewood, Georgia. Near Atlanta, I don't remember the year, early early 60s, maybe one or two. Anyway, Richard was driving. Back then, they'd, ran, they'd, they'd run regular hardtop cars and convertibles. Convertibles. Think about that. Yeah. Well, the beauty of that was if you're a fan and you're watching a convertible race, you can see the driver. You can... You can look down and see what they're doing. Wow. <laughs> it was very popular for a long time until convertibles ceased to become a popular showroom item. Mm -hmm. So Detroit quit building them mostly. Anyway, Richard was in a hardtop and Lee was in a convertible. And the purse was written that it was called a sweepstakes race. And the purse was written such that. The winner, if, if the renter was was in a hard top, he'd earn, I don't know, $2,000, whatever the number was. Mm -hmm. The winner was in a convertible, he'd win $2,500, a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So Richard wins. <laughs> Lee finishes second. <laughs> Lee immediately protests the scoring. And however it happened, the scoring eventually came around to where Lee had won. And Richard later on would say to me and other people, not just me, others, well, what was your daddy thinking? And Richard would look at us and he'd say, remember, this was in the early 60s. We were just getting started. For my daddy to win $500 more than I would have won was a big deal. He said, I learned very quickly not to question anything my daddy did 
from a business perspective. <laughs> he said, I still think I won that race. <laughs> but Daddy got, we Corp Petty Enterprises got $500 more for him being the winner than if I had been the winner. So everything worked out fine. What a smooth so he, move by Lee. That is tremendous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and good for Richard for recognizing the need. <laughs> yeah, Richard, and, and, and at the time, Richard was maybe 18 or 19. Right. He was, he was, he wanted to race so much or so desperately, he wasn't going to make a fuss and have his father say, well, I'll tell you what, young boy, you go find a ride wherever you want to. You're done with me. <laughs> Richard, Richard knew enough. Not to rattle his daddy. That's true. And, uh, That's and, true. And, and, you know, again, back in those days, it might have been the late 50s even. I don't remember exactly. I wasn't there. $500 was a big deal. Right. Back then. Oh, yeah. Hell, I'll take 500 now, Al. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Richard won 200 wins. That's in the book. It's not 201. Right. It's 200. Right. I wanted to ask you about one in particular. 1979, Daytona 500. Oh. Richard wins... It's the first full race broadcast. On, it was on CBS. And on the last lap, we hear the announcer say, there's a fight. You're there. Yeah. What the hell happened? In my humble opinion, it is a race that made NASCAR what it became. That kick-started what came after that. Um, yeah, I mean, Richard was running third at the white flag. Well behind, uh, no 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 factor to win at that moment. Donnie Allison and Kale Yarborough came off the second turn, pretty much one right behind the other, and and Kale pulled down to the inside to try to pass Donnie. Donnie moved down to push Kale into the the dirt, which at the time was mud because it had rained early that morning, and the. Daytona back then is not like it is now. If you got off the racetrack then, you were either in the mud or in Lake Lloyd, one or the other. So anyway, <laughs> Donnie pushes Kale to the inside. Kale pushes Donnie back to the other way. They go down the back stretch, basically, you know, like this, hitting each other. They finally, Kale turned right, and he and Donnie both go under the wall. And they slide back down to the banking, to the apron, in what is the entrance to turn three. Well, all of a sudden, everybody's saying, well, who's third? Oh, look, <laughs> off of turn two, here comes Richard. Here comes that 43 Plymouth. <laughs> yeah, the 43 with Richard and then Daryl and AJ, right, in, in an equal three-car battle. And as the camera, you know, flashes by the wreck scene, there comes Richard and Daryl and AJ, and they, they go on to win that race. And moments later, there's this memorable yell from Kim Squire. There's a fight. There's a fight in turn three. <laughs> Donnie and Kale had gotten out. And understandably so, there was a difference of opinion of who, who did what to whom. Um, so they started going at it. Kale, I think if, if, I, if my memory serves, Kale left his helmet on. Donnie foolishly took his off, and they got to flooding on each other. Well, Bobby comes around. Donnie's brother, yeah, Bobby, right? Yeah, Bobby, Bobby comes around. He gets out, and he goes to his brother's defense, and Kale basically says, well, there's two against one. I'll take both of you. Um, 
So they fight for maybe a minute, maybe less than a minute. It's not even, it, Red, you know, it's a pretty good bar fight, but not, yeah, there's yeah, been yeah, better, yeah, but seeing these guys wailing away at each other. Considering who they are, that's the thing. Right. If that had been David Sisko and, you know, somebody that we never heard of and they had been racing for 23rd, would CBS have cared? Well, maybe, but maybe not. So anyway, they race, they fight for about a minute and helmets are flying and people are punching each other and the rescue squad and, and the officials come and clear it all up. Um, and that was the day you alluded to it. That was the day that much of America, east of the Mississippi, was snowed in by a terrible, terrible storm. That's right. Yeah. There were planes weren't flying, trains weren't moving, buses weren't going anywhere. People were people had nothing to do. Yeah, you had three channels. NBA, you only had three channels. Right. Back then, NBA games had been called off. Hockey might have been on, but who knows? Anyway, the point being, most of America watched that race for the first time. They'd never seen it. And to see a race that important on a national over-the-air network end like that, and then there's a fight, which excited the, the, the fans more than maybe the finish. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> the next day at work or the next two days at work, Ken Squire called it the water cooler factor. Everybody in every office in America would gather to a water cooler for their morning water drink at 9.30. Did you see that race yesterday? <laughs> and that that basically, I think, got everything started. I think I think the 79500 was the biggest deal they've ever had. Mm. It's so appropriate that this happened at Daytona. So much history of NASCAR is wrapped up down there. I mean, dating back to when they were racing on the beach itself. Mm -hmm. um, and when you think of Daytona, I know a lot of people, they think of Dale Earnhardt. Yeah. And you mentioned his death, and I want to ask you about that day. But I also just want to talk to you a little bit about Dale, the person you got to know, the racer. When you think about Earnhardt, what do you think about? He, he would not want you to know how soft he was as a human being. Hmm. He would want you to know he was a badass racer who came from 18th to win at Talladega, who flipped and rolled at Daytona, got out of his car, noticed that the four tires were still up, got back in it, had him push it to the garage where it could be repaired. He, he would not want you to know that if you were a member of the media or you were a crewman for another team, and something happened back at home, and you had to go back to Charlotte or wherever you lived, you could have his airplane. He would not tell you anybody that I sent two guys home yesterday. Their wives went into labor. They couldn't get there and drive in time. Mm. I gave them my plane. Mm. He'd never tell you that. He would tell you, I wouldn't wreck my mother to win but I'd wreck your mother. <laughs> and and he was that way. He was he was so he was so focused on winning. The intimidator. Intimidator, he would not want you to know that there was a side of him that was 
altogether different from that. Did you ever have a personal experience with that side of Dale Earnhardt? Um, I think it, at some point all of us interviewed him individually, but it was probably all a a racing question. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think of the new tires? Well, they don't work crap. <laughs> We, we we never we I, I never talked to him on a on a personal level. It was always professional. Richard and I had a a personal relationship. Right. Dale Dale and I were mostly and Dale was like this with most every media person. He would keep you over there, but he would be polite and accommodating as long as it didn't interfere with being in the race car. Mm-hmm. Um. I think the thing about that day at Daytona that most of us still remember was it did not look that bad. Yeah, the day you're mentioning is February 18th, 2001. We had seen Dale, we had seen a myriad of drivers crash way, way, way looking worse than than his. The year that Richard Petty went down the front stretch, rolling and tumbling, got out and waved at the crowd. And that was, I, I called back and told my wife while he was still tumbling, I think I might've said, if he's dead, I'm done. I'm not going to cover this crap anymore, mm. but he was fine. So when, when Dale hit the wall and came back down and Schrader got into him, I don't think any of us in the media center or the press box thought anything of it other than, boy, he's going to be pissed. He's going he's gonna to really be mad. Because he was running third, and now he's going to finish 20th or something. Yeah, like it's that. turn four. It's the final lap of the Daytona Yeah, 500. coming for the flag. Right. Coming for the flag. And it didn't look bad, but he was going 160, and all of a sudden he goes from 160 to zero in 80 milliseconds. Yeah, he went, his head went forward, and that was before Hans devices. The, the, there were many tragedies about that or many ironies about that thing, one of which was Brett Bodine had tested the Hans device several times. Brett Bodine had raced many times the previous year with the Hans device. And after a particularly bad wreck with it, which did not affect him at all, he never got in a race car again without it. The, the morning of the race, Brett Bodine went up to Earnhardt and showed him his Hans device. He said, you know, you really should travel to these things. You know, that wreck I had at Michigan last fall didn't affect me at all. You should really try it. And Earnhardt responded as a badass driver would by saying, that's, you know, that's, he used a term I'm not going to use to indicate that Bodine was a little less manly than the rest of us because he's wearing this safety device that hooks to your helmet, your shoulder, mm-hmm. and, and keeps your head from... And Bodine later on said if he'd if he'd been wearing a Hans device, from everything we have seen of that wreck, he would have survived. No problem at all. Maybe a problem a little bit, but not dead. So anyway, that's one thing. Earnhardt was given the opportunity to use the Hans and, and turned it down. Um the other thing people people want to say is that Earnhardt was killed blocking for his two team drivers up front. And that's not exactly right. At that point on the racetrack, coming through turn four, headed for the little short shoot, 
those two, Michael Walter and Jr., were gone. They were going to finish one, two. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. People say, well, Earnhardt was trying to block Sterling Marlin to keep Sterling from beating his drivers. Well, that's not true. There's no way in the world Sterling Marlin could have come from fourth past Big Dale Jr. and Michael Waltrip in that distance. So Earnhardt was racing for third. He wasn't racing to help his teammates. Now, he had been racing to help his teammates on the backstretch earlier. Right. But once they got through turn three and four, and once Michael and, and Junior settled down, coming to the flag, Earnhardt was racing for third, and he knew it. So people would say he got killed protecting his son. That's bull. That's just not right. That's like mythologizing it. Yeah, it helps people deal with the grief that they felt, right, as a fan. Right. Or- he was he was racing for third. So when he hits the wall, when he hits the wall, like you said, you didn't think much of it. No. What was it like in the press box as it unfolded from there? The thing I remember most is the car hit the wall, Ken Schrader hit him, and they came down the banking into the infield. Earnhardt did not remove, did not lower his window net, which is the international sign that I'm okay. If you're in a bad wreck in NASCAR, if, even if your car won't move or is torn all to pieces, if you if you let down your window net, the safety crew knows that at least you can do that. So for a long time, there was no window net coming down. And then when Ken Schrader got to Earnhardt's window and lowered it down, Schrader just kind of instinctively turned away and began to frantic frantically not just, hey, guys, frantically wave for the rescue people to get over there. And the other thing that, that we got our attention was Darrell Waltrip was on TV on Fox. I think that was the first Fox broadcast. Mm-hmm. Darrell Waltrip was on there looking downturn toward four. The camera was on Darrell, and Darrell was saying, well, I hope Dale's all right. That's that's a bad crash, people. That's that's a hard hit. I'm, I'm worried about my buddy. I, I, I really hope he's okay. That got our attention. Mm. And then when they put him in the ambulance and took him directly to the hospital without bothering to go to the, to the medical center, we figured this is really bad. And they covered the car, brought it to the inspection impound area and it was a long time before we heard anything from the hospital and, and we saw pictures of junior rushing in uh with teresa and i think his sister was with him i think we all began to realize right then this this could be really really bad mm. we don't know how bad you know it could be fatal it could be life-changing it could be whatever and it wasn't until Mike Helton came in the media center and sat up on that chair and said, I've got, I've got a terrible announcement to make. And we, obviously, by then, we knew. The only question that remains, and it's not a big deal, was whether he was dead, whether he was dead at the racetrack or died on the way to the hospital. And the, the important thing there is, not really important now, but 
if it were if he was killed at the racetrack, it would be handled by the state of Florida as a workplace fatality. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that. If he died at the hospital, it was just another person being brought in and who died. Not that it makes a bit of difference. But that's, you know, we may never know that answer. I drove home that night, Virginia, 715 miles overnight, listened to every every talk show I could listen to. And most of them, believe it or not, talked about him. You know, you, you, you think people in Seattle and Chicago and Dallas would say, well, they killed another driver at Daytona today, and that's the way it goes. But the, these people were compassionate and understanding, and they – they realized it was a big deal. He transcended NASCAR, right? Yeah. Why is that? I mean, he won 76 times. He won seven championships like Petty and later Jimmy Johnson. But what was it about Earnhardt that made other people who maybe weren't racing fans pay attention? He was every man. He had come up. His father had been a racer who died working on his race car. Dale came up the hard way driving junk cars until he got decent. Um, he, he, he never, like Richard Petty, he never put on pretensions. He never acted like he was bigger than he was. Um, he had a soft spot that occasionally came through that you might not have wanted to see, but he did it. Um, he, he was basically an outdoorsman. He'd get on a tractor and and, to, and and till a field. He'd get on a on a caterpillar and mm. <laughs> dig a road if he wanted to. He was every man. He was a regular guy. He he. I don't know that he ever went to the White House. I don't know that he was ever honored by any president or any organizations like the UN. But he just can't. He had a personality that people enjoyed being around because he, he played with you. He, he messed around with you. And, and, and Junior, his son, is very much the same way. Junior is an absolutely wonderful human being, compassionate, caring, will do anything for you if he can, does that little podcast of his and talks to people and asks hard questions, but doesn't go beyond whatever line has been drawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. That whole family's. That whole family's. Their mama raised them right, as as they said. Their <laughs> mom and their daddy raised right. raised them boys right. Right. So. Right. Well, Earnhardt's death obviously was. It's kind of like a line in the sand. It was a moment in time that you can look at NASCAR before then and NASCAR after then. Well, it's amazing how many people say, "Well, race is not like it was," and Earnhardt was alive. Well. <laughs> The racing itself is even better. The actual on-track competition is better. Why do you say that? Well, there are more cars. There are more teams. I mean, Rick Hendrick has got four cars capable of winning. Joe Gibbs has got four cars capable of winning. Um, Richard Childers has a car and a half capable of winning. Uh, Trackhouse obviously has a car and a half capable of winning. Back in the day when I started, it was Petty, it was the Petty Enterprises, 
Holman Moody, um, Bud Moore, and somebody else. There were only about five cars that could win mm-hmm. back when I started, the Wood Brothers. There were only five or six cars capable of winning when I began covering. Last year, there were 19 mm-hmm. different winners, and I think from maybe 11 different teams. Right. The depth, the depth of competition is so much greater now because the money and the sponsorship, the technology is so much greater. Right. Now, there is an age-old question. People ask me all the time, what's more important, the driver or the car? And I say, well, put, uh, uh, put Kyle Larson in a car that usually finishes 25th and Kyle Larson can finish ninth or 10th. Put a 25th place car driver in a car that normally wins and he'll finish 12th or 13th. You've got, you've got to have, you got to have the right driver and the right team to win. That's what makes sports fun though, right? Those type of debates. I, I would, I, I would, <laughs> I would say that the car is marginally more important than the driver. A good car and a decent driver will win. A good car and a bad driver will not. A bad driver and a good car, probably not going to win much, but maybe. So there you go. Well, I'll tell you what. I don't even know how to change the oil on my own car. I don't either. But I know how to talk to somebody who knows racing, and that's you, Al. (laughs) And I really appreciate it. You've taken readers along for the ride for many, many years, and I want to thank you for taking our listeners alongside with you, too, on this episode. It's been really a a joy to to talk with somebody who's been around so many great moments and and drivers and teams in uh, the history of motorsports. I really appreciate this. Glad to do it. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening to PressBox Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.